Um, so if you turn to the to, into the session six slides, I think it's 117, 118. Um, you're going to see the uh, little piece on the seductive power of scenarios. You're going, again, imagine you've got one of these between subjects designs. Half of the people read the top slide, half of the people read the bottom slide. And then they make a judgment about the plausibility or probability of this outcome. Um, the first one on uh, slide 117 is the likelihood of a flood anywhere in North America in the next um, 30 years killing 1,000 people or more. And the next one is the likelihood of a flood anywhere in North America triggered by an earthquake causing a dam to collapse in the next 30 years, killing 1,000 people or more. Uh, okay, so the first one and the second one. Uh, and you can imagine randomly assigning people. So half the people read one version, half read the other. Um, and um, a moment's contemplation reveals that uh, it really would be very odd if people judged the second, the bottom slide, the, set, the, the more detailed one, to be more probable than the top one. Um, now, it's probably obvious to everybody around this room because you, this is an analytically high-powered group, but it's not obvious to most people. I think it's an important part of forecaster training and it's an important part, I think, of becoming a super forecaster. Um, being aware that there is this similarity across three superficially very different things. Uh, a similarity in how the subjects in Danny's contingent valuation experiments judge the value of ducks and, on, and lakes in Ontario, scope sensitivity. Uh, a similarity in um, the, the problem super forecasters have, not super forecasters, but regular forecasters have in distinguishing the likelihood of a sod falling in six months versus 12 months. And um, the dam scenarios. Is it, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it clear how these things are, are related? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, it, this also ties in somewhat, I guess, again, to this, this, this vexing problem of how people's judgments of, of explanations and people's and, and forecasting accuracy, because um, we, we are really tempted by rich narratives. It's, it's easy for us to transport ourselves imaginatively into it's, this, the richer, the, the more detailed narrative is more interesting, it's more engaging, uh, it's a better story. Um, and of course, it's less probable. Um, and uh, you, you don't really want to, you don't want to do an attribute substitution. You don't, don't get suckered by attribute substitution. You don't want to uh, uh, replace the question, is, is, is this an accurate forecast with, is this, is this an interesting story? Um, and, but it is tempting in, in many situations to do that. Um, and I make, I make that point actually on the slide, I guess it's 119. And then on slide 120, I, I, I talk about something we talked a bit about yesterday, which is um, you know, that scenarios can be a source of bias. They can cause you to attribute too much probability to too many possibilities. You can violate the axioms of probability. Probabilities can start adding up to more than one. That's a, that's a warning sign that you're incoherent. Um, so they can do that, but scenarios also have this, you can fight fire with fire, and you can use scenarios when you think backward in time. And I mentioned that yesterday in the connection with counterfactuals and hindsight bias, getting people to imagine counterfactual alternatives to reality is a way of counteracting hindsight bias. So hindsight bias is a difficulty people have in remembering their past states of ignorance, remembering what they thought before. And, um, uh, counterfactual scenarios can, can reconnect us to our past states of ignorance. Um, and that can be a useful, humbling exercise. Uh, and I think it's, um, 
I, I think in the long run it's it, it's good it's it's good mental hygiene and it's good uh, it's useful for debiasing. Um, so the final two slides in 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 the, in the um, of all of all this 130 slides, and we've obviously skipped and hopped around in various ways, but um, uh, there is this challenge that, that that's, uh, our, our most recent training modules for um, uh, super forecasting um, emphasize this bicycle riding metaphor and balancing metaphor and uh, balancing offsetting errors. Now some errors are more likely in some environments than others. Some errors may be more likely in general than others. But um, each, of the, each of the errors on slide 119 is logically and psychologically possible and it's helpful that people be aware of them. Uh, you have the, the perils of over-adjusting to evidence or under-adjusting to evidence. Over-adjusting to evidence is when you know, people see the big crowds forming in Moscow in early 2012 and they think Putin, Putin is finished. Um, uh, under-adjusting to evidence can also occur in many, in, in many, many, many situations in which we, you know, people were very, many were very slow, for example, to recognize, going, going way back, a little bit further back in history, many were very slow. In, in, in U.S. foreign policy establishment to recognize the reality of the Sino-Soviet split. Uh, as Bob, um, a student of uh, American politics, is well aware, um, they, they, they had this metal model of the communist monolith uh, and it was somewhat misleading. Um, but there's a tension between underconfidence and overconfidence um, uh, and there's a tension between um, Overpredicting and underpredicting change, attention between over and under, uh, estimating the uniqueness of situations. Um, so all of these are possible mistakes. Now the one we emphasize, we, we, we urge people to look for comparison classes, so we, we're, we're weighted somewhat toward uh, alerting people to ways in which the situation is similar to other situations. Um, but both, both errors are clearly, are clearly possible. Uh, so, what are we trying to do in the biggest picture sense? And, and I, I, I have a, a, the last slide is a quote from um, an English professor at Yale, um, retired, um, his name is Harold Bloom, and he was a Shakespeare scholar. And uh, the, the, the quote, I guess this is slide 120, is this 122? Yeah, slide 122 is, one learns from Shakespeare that self-overhearing is the prime function of soliloquy. Hamlet teaches us how to talk to oneself, not how to talk to others. This is a strange quote, um, it, but what, what does it mean? Um, I, I think what we're trying to encourage in training is uh, not only getting people to monitor their thought processes, but to, be, to listen to themselves think, think about how they think. Uh, that starts to sound like a sounds dangerous, like dangerously like an infinite regress into nowhere. Um, but the, the capacity to listen to yourself, talk to yourself, and decide whether you like what you're hearing <laughs> is a very useful. It's not. It's not something you can, you can sustain neurologically for very long. <laughs> I think it's a fleeting achievement of consciousness, um, but I think it's a it's a valuable one, and it's. Um, I think it's relevant to super forecasting. Um, so. Uh, there are really two big themes in this set of presentations. One of them is about self-improvement. And the article I circulated from Aaron Brown is really purely in this self-improvement mode. It's how, how to use these commandments to make yourself a better gambler, make yourself a better investor, make yourself smarter and richer. Um, that, that, that's, a, that's a clear self-improvement focus. Um, the thing that's been most on my mind in the last 
several months um, is a little bit is is is, is talked about in the, in, in the book, uh, but it's um, only talked about toward the end. And but it looms very large in my consciousness right now. And it's not some it's less focused on self improvement, how to make you smarter, richer, etc. Um, it is rather it's focused on how to make society a better place um, and how to improve the quality of, 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 of political debate and dialogue. And that's really what this last, last handout is about. It, it, I say condensing it all into four big problems and a killer app solution. Um, super forecasting is relevant here, um, and, and we can explain how, um, but it's also relevant to this larger agenda of improving the quality of, of high stakes policy debates. Uh, and, and, and so the first thing I wanted to say, the first big problem I see is that in virtually all high stakes policy debates we observe now, the participants are motivated less by pure accuracy goals than they are by an assortment of other goals. They're motivated by the ego defense, defending their past positions. They're motivated by self-promotion, claiming credit for things. Uh, correctly or incorrectly, they're motivated to affirm their loyalty to a community of co-believers because the status of pundits hinges critically on their social networks, on where they stand in those social networks. Um, but pun uh, if you're a liberal or a conservative high-profile high pundit, you know that if you make, if you, if you take one for the home team, they're, they're going to pick you up and, and keep, keep you moving along. Uh, there's a story, uh, there, there, so Dick Morris, I guess he was on Fox News, and he was, he was saying how, that you know, there's going to be a big, big, big Romney surge, and of course there wasn't. And you know, that's a damn, if you're a survey expert, you know, you're, you're a pollster, it's not good that you, <laughs> you, you're associated with a prediction of that sort. But the explanation he offered was, was, was really, really quite, in, quite astonishing from, from a forecasting tournament point of view. And, and that was that you know, he knew that the Romney campaign was falling apart, he knew that they were losing, but he had, had to buck, take one, he wanted to buck up the home team. Right? He admitted it. He admitted it was not a, it, he was not playing an epistemic game at all. <laughs> it was not a, it was the, uh, there was no accuracy component. He didn't believe it. He just said what he thought he needed to say in order to augment. But I, now I, that's an extreme case in which, which pundits actually are attaching zero value to accuracy. Uh, I think it, but in many, in many cases, pundits do know in the back of their minds that if, they, if, if, they're, if they're bullish on, 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 on something that they're community of co-believers is promoting aggressively in the policy domain, that if their predictions start to look suspect, that they're still going to be in good standing in, the, in, in their community. Uh, so um, this is what I call functionalist blurring. You, you can't read people's minds when they make a forecast or a quasi-forecast in a high-stakes policy debate. You can't say, ah, look, now they're, they're playing 0.6 accuracy game, 0.2 self-esteem game, 0.2 affirming loyalty to community of co-believers game. You can't parse it out exactly like that. You, you, although you can do experiments, actually, when you can parse this out a little bit. But even the, even the pundits themselves are not aware of what they're doing. I mean, they, they, if you ask them to introspect, they probably couldn't give you a, a clear answer. But functionalist blurring is a very common phenomenon, I think, in policy debates. So that's point one. Point two is, is this attribute substitution among debaters. So high-stakes high partisans. One point on that one. You say functionalist it's impossible blurring? to fix by introspection. I think so. Yeah, I think it's very extremely difficult. Yes. Wow. I, I, I think it, you, can, you can run experiments in which you manipulate the goals that people are supposed to have and see how that affects what they do. But I, I, don't, I, I think people have limited introspective access to what they're doing in these situations. Um, um, but I think for, you know, the one, one way you can tell if you're, if you're not playing a pure accuracy game is if you feel your probabilities are shifting when you move into the tournament. So 
mean, that's not, so you can introspect, I think introspection, if you introspect on that, on that shift, mm -hmm. I think you'll, you'll, you'll get some intuitive sense of the degree to which you're, you're playing a pure accuracy game as opposed to So institutional things you could do, like a single person could talk to a predictor uh, wallet yeah. and say, okay, Adam, what do you actually think? Yeah. Um, second, second big point, attribute, we've already talked about attribute substitution, high stakes partisans uh, want, want, want to simplify an otherwise intolerably complicated world and they use attribute substitution a lot and they, they take hard questions and they replace them with easy ones and they act as if the easy answers to the easy ones are answers to the hard ones. That is a very general tendency, we talked about it quite a bit yesterday. Um, the next one is, the third thing we talked a bit about yesterday is rhetorical obfuscation as an essential survival strategy if you're a political pundit. Uh, to preserve their self and public images um, in an environment that throws up a lot of surprises, which of course the political world does, um, high stakes partisans have to learn to master an arcane art. And that is the art of appearing to go out on a predictive limb uh, without actually doing it, um, of appearing to be making a forecast without actually really making a forecast. Uh, they, they say really decisive sounding things about Eurozone collapse or this or that, but there are so many mays and possiblys and, and coulds and so forth in there that turning it into a probability estimate that could be scored for accuracy is virtually impossible. Um, and it, and it, what it does, A, it, they can't keep score of themselves. B, there's no way to tell ex post which side was closer even to the truth. Because um, each side has rhetorically positioned itself in a way that, slind, that allows it to explain what happened, I suppose. I mean, that's possibly a media bias as well as a pundit bias in the sense that if you are, if you are too non-committal, you never get invited back. Yes, oh, absolutely, ab ab absolutely. Uh, I, I, so, I mean, the, the press has an in instinctive aversion to anybody who, who qualifies too yeah. much. So. Yeah. Yeah, and attribute substitution is not just going, uh, point four, attribute substitution is not just going on among the debaters, it's going on among, among in the audience as well. Audiences are remarkably forgiving of all these epistemological sins that debaters are committing. Um, and and they, they tend, uh, there's a tendency, they, they take partisan claims more or less at face value as long as the partisans belong to their community of co-believers. Um, but you know, again, this attribute substitution is, is uh, it's not, uh, does, my side, does my side know the answer is the really hard question. Uh, the easier one is, whom do I trust more to know the answer, my side or their side? I trust my side more to know the answer. Um, so again, this attribute substitution is, this profound, is a profound idea, uh, and it, it, it allows us to, to, to think we know a lot of things that we don't know. And it, 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 the, the net result of attribute substitution among both debaters and audiences is it makes it very hard to learn lessons from history that we weren't already ideologically predisposed to learn because history hinges on counterfactuals. Counterfactuals are invisible. You get to make up the data and it's kind of an ideological projection test. So what the promising solution, it's not a total solution, but it's uh, where I hope second generation tournaments go. Uh, for, the, the beauty of forecasting tournaments is, is, is that they're pure accuracy games that impose an unusual monastic discipline on how people go about making probability estimates uh, of the possible consequences of policy options. Uh, it, it's a way of reducing escape clauses for the debaters as well as um, reducing motivated reasoning room for the audience. And I think tournaments, if they're given a real shot, have a potential to raise the quality of debates by incentivizing competition to be more accurate and reducing functionalist blurring that makes it so difficult to figure out who's closer to the truth. Um, the problem is, and this is the final, something pushes me more toward the pessimistic end of the continuum again, is the potential of forecasting tournaments to 
improve the quality of debates uh, could, 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 could be untapped for many decades or even centuries uh, because there are such powerful forces that are arrayed against adopting forecasting tournaments. Um, and then the, then the rhetorical question at the end is why should high status incumbents agree to play on a level playing field competition in which the best possible outcome is that they retain their alpha pundit status within their community of co-believers? Why, why do that? Um, and if, if the answer is, you know, Tom Friedman just doesn't return the phone call, none of them return the phone call, <laughs> you, 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 you don't have them engaged in forecasting tournaments, how, is there a way around that? And if people have creative ideas for how we can um, use tournaments to disrupt stale status hierarchies, and I think we have a lot of stale status hierarchies in policy debates, um, I think that would be um, a big contribution to um, our society. A small contribution to that might be that you have different um, communities. There's the community that reads the New York Times, which, so Friedman's not going to do this, but you could set up a separate community, like you had, where the status is related to the quality of the, com in the competition. But it's a tiny community, and even if it gets 20 times more prominence than any other work I've ever done, it's still tiny <laughs> and it compared to these other things, right? It's, uh, well, it could be done within organizations, too, so that, I mean, there are already economic competitions that predict unemployment and interest rates six months in advance. Yeah. And um, those people don't necessarily write op-ed pieces, but they do uh, have a reputation within their communities that's based on education. Yeah. Here's what my gut tells me. My gut tells me that uh, just as super forecasters seem to come mostly from more techie kinds of environments, yeah. I think the solutions, I think the forecasting tournament model is going to need to be initiated from techie or the techie world. It's, I don't, I don't, I'm not expecting it to come yeah. from the New York Times or the Wall Street mm -hmm. Journal. Right. Phil, the, what you're really trying to affect is the quality of the public discourse sounds like. Yes, exactly. And so the question is, and it sounds like you guys have gone part way into it, is what would happen if you had real public access, real public visibility, public transparency, maybe in terms of public uh, participation in one of these tournaments? Um, would that start to affect, by engaging the public with the process and participation and actually sort of getting affected by how it works. Do you think that would be a second generation tournament to go public? Um, I think mass engagement is, 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 is very important. Um, I don't think it's sufficient for doing sophisticated second generation tournaments that help to improve the quality of policy debates, but I think it's, it's, it starts to get people's attention. It becomes much harder for the high, the high status incumbents mm -hmm. to ignore it when very large numbers of people are engaged, including some High status people, and then, then once some high status people become engaged, then it, then it start, I think it starts to cascade. But I think it's equally important, though, that you know, engage mass engagement, but also high quality questions. Right. Engaging high quality questions. Where do high quality questions come from? Well, uh, they, 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 they sometimes they come from hedgehoggy pundits, mm -hmm. you know, the people who are being not 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 so indirectly being criticized here. So you tried on the very specific issue of how do you get to kickstart this thing to be capable of being so broadly uh, interacted with, either by the general public or by more people self-selecting to become part of your crowd. It's sort of like the same problem Peter Diamandis continues to have with, how can I make a prize 
that will get enough public attention that will, it's a it's a chicken and egg get somebody really big to put up enough money but they'll only put up enough you know it's very hard because what it typically struggles with is while we all know the climate change issue is a real issue it, how do you make a prize that has all the required qualities to make something it has a simple well-defined set of rules it has a clearly defined winner People can follow it and understand it as they go. Almost nothing to do with the actual problem to be solved, but the, the structure around it, doing it that makes it easy for the media to follow it, etc. And so, if you if if you for a second forget about how am I going to get the super forecasters and how well they're going to do, come up with a problem that meets the criteria that everybody cares about it in some way. Even for all of the subtleties that you're better at than certainly I am. They may not know they care about it, but if you put it in the right phraseology, they do care about it. Their aging, their health, the environment. Yeah, health is a big one. You come up with something that, if properly phrased, it would get everybody's attention if it was a one-liner, it was a headline. Yeah. Then you also came up with a finite time frame to discuss it and to put some clear rules around who who did better at accomplishing the goal. And if you did that, I suspect, you could get various people that have a passion for this, that appreciate the importance of better forecasting, maybe eliminating the next war that was a mistake. Or that you then can go to some of the people that have big funds available to them and say, we're going to do this prize. It's an X prize. And the person that gets closer on the date we reveal the future, the, the, the winner will get $10 million or something. It would not be hard to get somebody to fund something if you met the first two criteria. That it's broadly interesting, and the contest could be easily understood, and people could appreciate there really is a winner, not a. And then, if you if you met all of those, getting the media attention that you think you wouldn't get even at twenty times their size here, you use against them the fact that the the. Uh, Tom Friedman's don't respond because it doesn't take much time or money, whether it's you know in the New York Times with this article about it or an op-ed or on public media where you have the John Stewarts of the world saying, hmm, this project is very important, lots of people are doing it, but look at these five super pundits that seem to have expert opinions on everything. They wouldn't respond to phone. They would it would be, I think, pretty straightforward if you've got a credible contest going to see that they were conspicuous by their absence, that the real pundits on these things are nowhere to be seen. And that would probably start the more serious dialogue that you want, which is, why is it that all these great pundits won't do this, and then it might start the next op-ed that says, you know, we've looked at these guys, and their track record is either non-existent or bad, which nobody seems to do. And you've pointed out over and over again, they don't keep score just getting the public to realize that they don't keep score, just getting the public to realize that when they speak, they speak with enough double talk that while they made a profound statement here, the small print eroded any capability for them to be culpable for that. Yeah. I mean, everything you're concerned about doing, you could probably humanize pretty well in a competition if you talk to people that have expertise. And I think it'd be a good TV show. Well, why don't you just make it a huge TV show? Because it's got constant new material, right? And I bet Vice or HBO or someone would totally do this. Mm -hmm.
reality forecasting. There's also there's also a very simple thing, which is you just start a New York Times column called "What Have You Changed Your Mind About?" Well, because if the answer to that is nothing, <laughs> you look pretty stupid. Now, I mean, you're stealing it from Keynes, aren't you? And he was accused of inconsistency, and he said, "When the facts change, I change my mind, sir. What do you do?" And actually, you know, simply reframing it so that a mark of intelligence is not mental consistency, but mental flexibility might help. The nice thing about what Dean just said was there's the carrot, the $10 million, and the stick that here's a case where shame comes in again, and it's necessary to get the Tom Friedman's of the world feeling bad enough about not being a part of it that they become a part of it.